The passage today is Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 12. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Uh, if you grew up in a Commonwealth country, and I, I'm pretty sure if you grew up in the United States, when a king or royalty visited, it was a big deal. In Australia, everyone went to the airport, there were crowds as the, the royal couple or the royal representative couple got off the plane. Everyone would cheer and shout and wave flags, and it's a big deal when royalty comes to town. And today, I think that's mostly ceremony, mostly pageantry, mostly almost uh, preoccupation with a life that we don't understand. But back in the day, kings meant a lot more than they do today. The kings were the sense of security for the nation. They were the representation of order, of justice. Kings righted wrongs. Kings were supposed to be God's earthly agent. And certainly we see that picture at the end of Judges in the Old Testament where they're crying out for a king. They want someone to represent that order, that justice, that security for the nation of Israel. We see that in David and in Solomon, King David and King Solomon, over the united uh, Israel before the civil war divides them into two sections. So we see that dependency, that need or that desire, that expectation that's placed on a king. And today we come to a really, really familiar story. A king entering into Jerusalem and a crowd going wild. It's like a coronation service for this king riding in on a horse into Jerusalem. And this is a story which is easily accessible from any of the Gospels in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 12, and John, uh, sorry, Luke 19 and John 12, all have accounts of this triumphant entrance of Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. And we've looked at this story every year that North Point has been in existence, 12 years, four stories, probably three times each of those gospel stories, we've looked at this story. Jerusalem, where the city cries out, Hosanna, and then in a few days' time, calls out, crucify him. A coronation service that doesn't end on the throne, but hanging on a cross. A coronation service that doesn't end with a crown of jewels, but a crown of thorns. And we ask the question, how does a crowd go from crying out, Hosanna, to crying out, crucify him? How does a king start being celebrated, then accused, and then mocked? And we see that with Pilate, where he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? We see that with the chief priests. Do you call yourself the king of the Jews? And we see with the nails, 
the nail on the sign on the cross, the king of the Jews. They are mocking him to the last. Today we're going to look at a passage in the Old Testament, a prophecy passage which foretells this entrance. The uh, passage that Jeff read from Zechariah. And we're going to look at this, at the different expectation of the Messiah that we find in the prophecy from the one that the crowd have. And we're going to contrast the crowd and the prophecy. We'll begin with the crowd. We'll quickly run through that. The crowd, or what I call the small God explanation. Now, Jesus' reputation is on the up. He's just raised someone from, from the dead. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And people are talking about it. He's performed miracles everywhere. The, the, the news is out that there's a new uh, Messiah, a new uh, possible uh, overthrower of the, Roman, of the Romans. There's a new leader in town. There's, there's a, there's a, Jesus' popularity and his... And his uh, the news of his coming is out and the crowds are starting to gather. And the tension is going up accordingly. Those who are in authority are looking at him and saying, whoa, this is getting out of hand. The people are listening to him. The people are following. The people are flocking to him. We don't have the same control that we used to have. And you can see that in two of the accounts of the triumphant inference. Uh, the Luke account in uh, chapter 19, verse 37, and I'll read that to you. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all of the miracles they had seen. And also in the account from John, verses 17 to 19, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So you have this picture of this crowd ramping up. But what happens to this crowd? How do they go from king celebrated to king mocked in just a few days? Well, there's two clues in what we've read. The first is the obsession with these miracles, right? It's almost like there's a curiosity factor, there's an interest, uh, but there's no real sub submission there. There's, there's almost like, what's going on here? I like some of that, it looks good, I'm curious, I'm interested, but we don't see any submission there. And the second clue is in the palm branches. These things that we've been waving today to celebrate the coming of the king, because you see, if you remember the story where Jesus holds up the coin and says, give what to Caesar's, what is Caesar's, and give... Uh, uh, to God what is God's? Well, that's because the coin had a picture of Caesar on it. But before the Romans uh, took over the Jewish nation and before they subjugated them, the Jewish coins had a palm branch on them. So when they're waving these palms as the king is coming in, that is a nationalistic cry for uh, someone, to a revolutionary to rise up. And here's these crowds gathering around Jesus. He's gathered, he's gathered the people. He's clearly a leader. He's, he has some sort of power which no one else has. And the expectation is this is the Messiah that's going to free us. That's going to take us out of captivity to the Romans. And if you have this view, this curious view, or this, um, this uh, 
I want to see what's going on view without any submission, or you have this, this is a revolutionary going to overthrow the Romans view, this nationalistic view, a king that would free us from the Romans, then the passion of Christ, this coming week, is a complete failure. Jesus is nothing more than a failed revolutionary that ends up dead. Jesus' fleeting kingly kingly authority, which we see as he's coming in this triumphant entry, is great, but if he fails to deliver, he is rejected. It's like a vending machine. God, if you can give us what we need, if we can see the miracles, if we can get the things that suit us, if you can overthrow the Romans, we're in. But if you're not, if you can't, then we're out. There's no idea of submitting to a king here, just using God as a vending machine. And you only use a vending machine when it works and when you like the contents. And here they are putting the money in the coin and nothing is coming out. We're coming out to praise you, but where's the revolution? Where's the overthrow? Where are the miracles? We saw some before, but where are they now? Save yourself. Why didn't, where are you, Jesus? King Jesus, Messiah Jesus, where are you? And this has... This does not, uh, does not really uh, always express some of the ways we can distort that image of the Messiah. I have a, a friend, a missionary friend, in fact, who I was talking to just recently who told me that he has this real problem with God. He submits to God, but he doesn't like submitting to God, and he doesn't feel close to God, and he wants to push God away because he grew up hearing missionaries say all the time, well, I didn't really want to be a missionary in wherever, but, you know, I just pushed against it and pushed against it, and finally God made me do it. And he just kept on hearing all the time, whatever your desire is, God's going to take that away, and you're going to end up having to do it anyway. And he says, I'm, I'm afraid to have any desires. I'm afraid to even find out what I want and what I care about, because as soon as I push it up there, as soon as I name it, God is going to claim it from me. And so we have this idea of this nasty, oppressive God. Okay, sure, we can just reject submitting to God, or we can choose to submit to this God who's going to make life hard for us, who's going to take the things we want away from us. We end up a little better and twisted. So either way, we're either using a vending machine where we're not really getting what we want, or we've abandoned the concept of the vending machine. So that's what's going on in Jerusalem. But what's going on in the prophecy? What's going on in Zechariah? What's this big explanation that Zechariah has of this coming Messiah? Well, we first of all need to go back and look at a little bit of history. We mentioned uh, Solomon and David, the divided kingdom. And then after the divided kingdom with Israel in the north and Judah in the south, they both get taken up into exile. Uh, Eventually they go to Babylon and then Syria. And then we have this prophecy from Zechariah of restoration, of rebuilding a temple. But it begins, which we didn't read in verses 1 to 8, with God coming in as a battle warrior king and destroying all the great nations of the time, obliterating them. And so, uh, and so we see this embattled bunch of Hebrews, of Israelites, of Uh, looking out at that first passage and saying, wow, we are in so much shame, we are in so much oppression, we are in so much despair in Babylon. But here is this hope 
of this king riding in and destroying all those things. But this is the king of judgment. And so as soon as we transition to verse 9, we see, oh, no longer on a war horse. He's on a donkey. He's coming in peace. And they had reason to worry because they've had their issues with God already. They've had a tough time getting it right with God. And so they're worried about that judgment coming. And God comes not on a war horse to Jerusalem, but on a donkey. And it's, uh, there's some good news in this passage because even though he comes to Jerusalem to bring peace, to bring global rule. Let me read that first verse, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt and a foal of a donkey. Even though he comes in that and bringing peace as a victor, having conquered all the evil around, the conquering is not just for Jerusalem. We see that, in fact, that peace, that global rule in 10... Uh, verses 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. And Ephraim means not just the southern kingdom, which was really all that was left. It was all of Israel before the civil war and before the divided kingdom. So already there's this sense of, oh, it's bigger than just the nucleus. But he goes on to say, not just Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow, uh, the battle bow will be broken. He proclaims peace to the nations, and then his rule extends from sea to sea. That's another way of saying from right around the earth, across everything. And so we have this picture then of a global rule, Jerusalem, Ephraim, nations, sea to sea. It goes on to talk about uh, from, the, from the river to the ends of the earth, and almost certainly that river was the Euphrates, where they were enslaved, where they were uh, living in shame, and in despair, where they felt hopeless. And then it's talking about flowing out to everywhere from this grand central world power after God comes and saves them from that, removes them from their shame and despair. That rule, that peace is going to flow out to everywhere. And so there are three pieces in verses 11 and 12, which are actually the most important pieces of this prophecy that we need to pick up. So let's read the verses and then we'll pull out the three pieces. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. And the three pieces are just this. The what, the how, and our response. The what, I will free the prisoners from the pit. I will restore uh, you with twice uh, as much to you. So there's a freedom and a restoration. That's the what. And here's a really interesting thing, and I want you to notice this. This does not look to me like they're not getting their desires. In fact, I think they're getting their desires in full. So even though we were giving that crowd a hard time for wanting to, to overthrow the Romans, here they are saying, we want the fullness of the rule of, we want this king to come, we want this king to be victorious, and we want to be restored. And here it is in this prophecy saying that it will happen in all its fullness. In fact, it talks about two times, which is a way of connecting to the birthright or the restoration after a thief has stolen something. There's an expectation that you make it doubly as good. We even see that at the end of Job. This idea that whatever you lost, you'll get back 
in abundance, in, in more than what was taken away from you. And this, in some ways, appears like the ultimate vending machine. Right? The ultimate vending machine for people who have been taken into exile, for people who have been brought in, uh, find themselves in shame or find themselves in despair, they're taken out of this pit without water and they're fully restored and peace comes and the rule of this king which brings order and justice and security is exactly what they, they want. And yet it seems like that, that full expression of the vending machine image that we saw uh, from the crowd. Now, how is, that, uh, how is that achieved? Well, and we'll come back to that, uh, to that paradox in a minute, but how is that achieved? That's achieved with the blood of the covenant. And we, if you've been with us during the last series, you know that, that covenants are cut. They're cut because, and if you go back to the Abrahamic covenant where this all begins, because someone pays the price when there's a debt, when something is owed, someone has to pay it. You smash my car, either I pay for it or you pay for it. You, you commit treason, you rebel, there's a price to be paid, there's a cost, and that cost is paid in blood. Justice meets mercy in the covenant because Jesus says, it is not you that's going to pay this, it's me that's going to pay this. That's the whole point of Passion Week, where justice meets mercy, where everything that we owe is taken and paid down by Jesus himself. The blood of the covenant, which was foretold in the Abrahamic covenant, and again and again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, is finally fulfilled in Passion Week when Christ is the sacrificial lamb on the cross. And that's how this peace is going to be brought about. That's how this rule is going to, to happen. It's going to happen because Christ is going to pay the debt which separates us from him and, and, from, and from God and the Father. And the response to that is one of repentance. And here we get the beginning of the answer of that juxtaposition of the vending machine. You see, we aren't swapping when we turn to Christ one form of oppressive submission with another form of oppressive submission. Look at the words here in verse 12. Return to your fortress, that word return could also read repent. Repent, meaning do a 180 degree turn. Go back to your fortress, to your safe place, to your uh, shalom place, to your flourishing place, you prisoners of hope. And what's he saying there? So this submission that we talk about in Christ, this covenantal relationship submission, actually brings us into fullness, and that's the freedom. And it's helpful for us to understand that because we get so confused with the idea that there's all these rules out there, and I've got to either do the vending machine God way or reject the vending machine, and either way is oppressive. Either I'm trying to make it on my own and it's really hard and I just abandon God, or I try to make it with God, but it's just an uphill struggle. I get bitter and I get frustrated and I get annoyed and I've got to sacrifice and he's just a nasty old man. He's just 
He doesn't think I'm important enough. And, and life is just hard and difficult. If you see the blood of the covenant as where justice meets mercy, if you see this new type of submission as a way of flourishing in freedom, then the passion of Christ becomes victory, not failure. Jesus conquers sin through his death. He's not a failed re revolutionary who died. And so we conclude then by noting and making note of this strong difference between covenant submission and oppressive submission and the vending machine versus the relationship and what it means to be a plant in a garden, thriving, what it means to be a dog in a, in a family, thriving, what it means to be a human listening to, hearing and processing and leaning in and spirit connecting with your desires because God is putting them in your heart to guide you, not to trick you, not to pull the rug out from underneath you. That missionary uh, person, child that I talked to, the kid of the missionary that I spoke to, as we worked it through again and again and again, we worked out what does it mean to be faithful as a Christian? How do I get away from this idea that my desires are really scary because as soon as I declare them, God's going to take them away from me like a nasty old man. And we get to this idea that it's faithful to want for and to pursue the desires that God has given us. And even more than that, because we get this idea with this strange vending machine thing that we're not that important. That God, we don't really matter to God. That we're not that valuable to God. So we turned it to, no, the definition of being faithful for him then has become to use my God-given gifts and talents to fulfill my God-given desires and wants. And there's a freedom in that. There's not a submission which is oppressive. oppressive. There's a submission which is freeing in that. Piper, John Piper puts it a different way. He talks about Christian hedonism and this idea of leaning into the spirit and, 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 and embracing the desires God puts in our hearts and, and responding to invitation rather than shoulds and oppressive rules and regulations moving into relationship where we get to know God's desires and hearts and we allow God to communicate to, to, to us through our desires and our hearts and we pursue them. He, he puts it like this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. C.S. Lewis in Weight of Glory puts it like this, it seems that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The problem with the crowd, the problem with us, is not that they had too higher expectations of what Jesus was capable of doing. The problem was they had too low expectations. They had a small view of who God was. They thought at best he was a nasty 
old man. And at worst, he couldn't deliver on his problems. They had a small guard view of the world. The, pro the prophecy in, in Zechariah has a big view of who God is. And when we get to Passion Week, we see it turned on its head. Because we see, and as we walk through this Passion Week, we will see that Jesus himself says, I am going to pursue what my desire is. And I really encourage you to spend the time, pick one of those passages, the Matthew, the Mark, the Luke, or the John, and read through it, or take the brochure that uh, Jen handed out and work through it with your kids, and, and make the time. Spirit, nurture yourself in the Word with the story. Walk the Passion Week and see Jesus walking to the cross, walking as a lamb to be slaughtered, walking... And this is the important piece, walking to redeem something which was the pinnacle of his desire, the desire that God had put on his heart. He was being faithful in responding to his desire and that he was willing to sacrifice his blood for the thing which was so special, so important to him. And if you doubt this God, if you think he's a nasty old man, in Passion Week, remind yourself that that is you. That that is you. Christ walked through Passion Week, walked through this week for you, went to the cross for you, was the lamb that was slaughtered for you. He loves you that much. He desires you that much. He wants relationship with you that much. That river of shame and despair that flowed out of Babylon, that flows over us, no longer flows over us. It flows over him, and we are washed clean with his blood. Today is the beginning of a coronation. It is the beginning of a coronation with a cross for a throne and thorns for a crown that is the coronation which brings an end to us for shame and despair because we are the ultimate desire of Jesus' heart. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, help us not to forget the horror of this week, but as we recount the horror, let us also remember that this is a walk of incredible love, of incredible devotion, of incredible delight and desire for us. Father, free us to be experiences of freedom. Help us to lean into you, to lean into your spirit, to lean into the God-given desires you put us in our heart. Help us move away from these terrible narratives of vending machines and nasty, mean-spiritedness. Help us to see that you really are the God of love who delights in us. This week we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.